Changes to NHS procurement. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Welcome to this Public Law Podcast from 39 Essex Chambers, in which we're going to be talking about some really significant changes to NHS procurement coming down the pipeline. To help with this, I'm pleased to say we've got two expert speakers. We've got Sharon Lamb, who's a partner at McDermott, Will and Emery. Her work focuses on the health and life sciences sector. And frankly, what she doesn't know about healthcare law, and particularly NHS procurement, is not worth knowing. And I've also got with me uh, Jenny Thielen, who is a barrister colleague of mine at 39. She has an exceptionally broad practice covering public law and commercial law matters. And she's regularly instructed in um, legal challenges to NHS procurement awards. Uh, And then I'm Catherine, Catherine Barnes. I'm another barrister at 39. I specialise in all areas of public law with a particular interest in procurement, including NHS procurement. So without further ado, let me give you a little bit of background. The government's been clear since 2019 that NHS procurement should not only be exempt from current procurement requirements, but it should also be exempt from the new post-Brexit procurement regime. You might wonder why freeing the NHS from competitive tendering requirements matters so much, when in fact more than 90% of NHS commissioning contracts are already awarded without any competition. Well, the reality I'd suggest is that NHS procurement is a deeply political and highly contentious issue. While some think competition within the NHS ensures maximum value for money and therefore value for the taxpayer, there's strong sentiment within the NHS and and government that competitive tendering in this field is not in the public interest. So to that end, significant changes have been proposed in the form of a new provider selection model for NHS commissioning. So I'd like to kick off with a quick recap of the rules governing the procurement of NHS services at the moment. Jenny, can you give us a little outline of the system we have right now? Catherine, thanks for this. Um, There are essentially two parts to the current system. First part is uh, the EU law-derived rules, um, the the Public Contract Regulations 2015. Essentially, NHS contracts for the provision of healthcare services are not caught by the most stringent requirements of the PCR unless they exceed the threshold of €750,000. If they exceed this threshold, the light-touch regime kicks in. This requires NHS procurers to advertise the contract by contract notice or prior information notice, hold some sort of competitive award process which complies with principles of equal treatment and transparency. In awarding the contract, contracting authorities may take into account any relevant considerations, um, including the need to ensure quality, continuity, accessibility, affordability, availability, and the comprehensiveness of the service. So it's not just about price. And they need to publish the contract award notice. But there are various exemptions where the contracting authority can avoid the competitive process and has the flexibility to change the process subject to adherence to general principles. Any prejudiced economic operator has the statutory right to challenge under these regulations. 
I can take part two more quickly. That's the, the 2013 PPCCRs. These apply to all contracts for healthcare services, regardless of value, where the procurer is the CCG or NHS England. These regulations also enshrine the choice regime and the right of providers who meet the criteria for AQP services to be listed. So how do we know the current regime is set to change? Well, these changes have actually been in train for some time. In September 2019, NHS England and NHS Improvement wrote a set of recommendations to the government for new legislative change, and these included proposals to revoke the current procurement and competition requirements under the PPCR and replace them with a new regime. And then the consultation for that kicked off in February this year, with the response published in August 21, and at the same time the Health and Care Bill, which would be the primary legislation under which these would be um, implemented, was published on the 6th of July and is currently going through Parliament. So what's the scope of the new regime? Does it just cover NHS services? Yeah, that's a good question. The provider selection regime, the consultation, was limited to NHS services. It specifically said it would not cover social care services, public health services, so those such as test and trace, goods or medicines or community pharmacy. So really at that point, it just looked like a slight widening of the current 2013 regulations which apply only to NHS services commissioned by NHS commissioners, so CCGs in NHS England. But the actual health and care bill is potentially much wider. That says that the regulations that will be made under the Act when when enacted could cover a wider set of authorities, so not just commissioners, it would cover local authorities, integrated care boards, trusts and foundation trusts. And more importantly, when we look at the scope of what may be included within those regulations, it covers healthcare services for the purposes of the health service in England, so NHS services, and other goods or services that are procured together with those healthcare services. So that, for example, might cover an outcomes-based contract, which includes drugs and devices. Um, It may also cover referral management services, or some other services that aren't typically within NHS services. So we don't know at this stage if the actual regulations will follow the consultation, and of course in theory they should, or whether they will be wider as set out in the bill which is going through Parliament. So let's now look at the new regime in a bit more detail. Jenny, can you give us an outline of how it's supposed to work? The new duty around which the new regime is arranged, is that services are to be arranged in the best interests of patients, taxpayers, and the population. And it organizes procurement into three streams. Stream one is the continuation of existing arrangements. Stream two is selecting the most suitable provider when the service is new or substantially changing, but competitive procurement is not appropriate. And stream three is competitive procurement. Great. So how about stream one specifically? How's that supposed to work? In, in theory, this sounds like the easiest of, of, the, of the streams until we look a bit deeper. Uh, it could be engaged in three situations. The first is one that would fall within a current exception within the procurement rules itself. It applies where the incumbent provider is the only viable provider due to the nature of the services in question. For example, we might look at cardiac um, A&E or some ICU services. And as you know, many NHS services are already arranged this way. The second is where there's an alternate route for purchasing, so elective choice through AQP or GP contracts, GMS contracts, where 
effectively those are statutory arrangements. Now, the third is the most interesting of those, and that's where you have an incumbent and you consider they are doing a good job against key criteria and there's no value in seeking another provider. There's no real test for Stream 1 except for the key criteria, but the decision-making body needs to be satisfied they can justify continuing the existing arrangements. They have to publish their intention to award the contract with a notice period, suggested to be four to six weeks, although it's not clear how that will work. It appears this might be some kind of standstill period without the formalities. And then if credible representations are received from other providers, the decision-making body must deal with them. Also, again, not terribly clear. I'm struck by the fact a provider is allowed to continue when they're doing a good job, quote-unquote, That sounds pretty vague. How in practical terms do you think that will be judged, Sharon? Yeah, completely agree. I mean, good job feels like a particularly subjective and open-ended choice of words, but maybe that's just to lawyers. Um, The government has fleshed out that concept a bit in the consultation response, which says that decision makers will have to look at how the service currently operates, and that means looking at, at how the services are being delivered. It's also said that the contract shouldn't be being rolled over unless the provider is delivering against the key criteria. But I mean, but of course, that's what the provider is contracted to do, to do anyway, and that seems to be kind of good contract management. If the if the provider isn't meeting the criteria in the contract, there may not necessarily be grounds for contract termination. But it doesn't mean it's doing a very good job. And conversely, it may be doing. A, f- a fine job meeting the cron- contract criteria, but still not be good enough against the criteria. So all in all, a bit problematic. So that's stream one in outline. What about stream two? Stream two applies to selecting the most suitable provider when a service is changing considerably, when a new service is being established, when the incumbent no longer wants to provide the service, or where the decision-making body wants to use a different provider. I mean, for me, this is the murkiest of the streams. The selection process by a decision-making body must apply a set of key criteria. Where a decision-maker has reasonable grounds for believing that one provider or, or group of providers is the most suitable provider, they can award the contract to that provider without conducting a tendering process. But it's supposed to be done in a transparent way, and specific transparency requirements apply. To use this process to select a provider, a decision maker must set out clearly that they are adopting this approach, be able to justify why the selected provider is the most suitable by reference to specified criteria, and those are quality and innovation, value, integration and collaboration, access, inequalities and choice, and service sustainability and social value. But they also may take into account any other relevant factors and apply those factors according to any hierarchy of importance the decision-making body decides is necessary. So they can effectively design their own scorecard. Um, They have to establish that they've carefully considered other potential options and providers within the relevant geographical footprint and, as with Stream 1, publish their intention to award the contract with a suitable notice period, which is suggested to be four to six weeks, and representations can be made during this notice period, which will then have to be addressed before a final decision is made. That raises all sorts of questions for me. 
Um, just one thing that springs to mind, it seems Stream 2 is premised on the assumption that a commissioning body already has up-to-date information about all potential providers. But how are they supposed to obtain that information when they're not putting themselves forward to tender? Any thoughts on that, Jenny? Catherine, I agree. There are lots of questions. How are decision makers supposed to be familiar with providers they haven't worked with? And if they're not familiar with providers, do they have a duty of inquiry or investigation? And how does this square with the goal of encouraging innovation? Um, Also, what does the term no longer wants to use that provider mean? It does appear to introduce subjectivity and relationship-driven contracting. The government's consultation document envisions a level of up-to-date market intelligence, which is likely to be, um, in my view, an unrealistic standard quite often. Um, There must be many markets where this won't be the case, and it will never be the case for new providers. The consultation response really doesn't grapple with this, despite the issue being very clearly raised by those responding to the consultation. Rather, the response simply reiterates that government expects decision makers to be familiar with providers in their area and expects decision makers to be routinely assessing local providers. And what about the third stream? When would you run a competitive process? So there seems to be some kind of discretion about for a commissioning body about whether to run a, a competitive process. And it also seems to be designed where the decision-making body hasn't been able to identify a most suitable provider via Stream 2, i.e. so Stream 2 really is gating for Stream 3. Um, And at this point, you know, the the competitive process really looks very similar to what we might expect in any, might we say, bog-standard procurement exercise. It's got best practice and guidance, such as HM, HM Treasuries managing public money, It must ensure the process is transparent, open and fair, no direct conflicts of interest, formal advert, uh, compare providers against criteria, flexibility to add criteria in there, and then also publication of intent to award the contract with a suitable notice period four to six weeks and to address any credible representations. So broadly similar, but interesting to see that it's only in stream three that we have the reference there to managing public money. Um, and transparent, open and fair, one would assume that those have to apply in stream one and stream two too. Thanks, Sharon. So putting the overt politics to one side for a moment, why does the NHS favour these changes? What's wrong with the current regime from the NHS's perspective? The stated goal is to promote collaboration between NHS organisations and their partners to help speed the implementation of the NHS long-term plan. To facilitate this, the idea is for competitive tendering to be a tool that NHS can choose to use where appropriate, so effectively a last resort when you're otherwise unable to find a suitable provider, rather than being an obligation, which it is currently said, hangs over all decisions about arranging services, drives competitive behavior at the expense of collaboration, and creates barriers where integrating care is the aim. So this this change reflects an interesting resetting of priorities. It's a promotion of integration and a cutting of bureaucracy, and that's seen as more important than ensuring the highest quality service for the best price. Thanks, Jenny. So let's have a think about the implications for independent private sector contractors. Sharon, can you tell us about those? So the consultation says the regime is meant to apply even-handedly, irrespective of the type of provider. But I think we have seen changes 
both this year and in other documents, and possibly in the Health and Care Bill, which suggests that there might be um, an uneven playing field. Um, Those who responded to the consultation suggested that there should be differential treatments, but notably this was rejected in the consultation response. Looking at what it really will mean, to the extent private providers are AQP, so elective choice providers, that should continue unaffected. Um, Primary care providers... Um, who are currently contracted through the PMS, GMS routes, again, probably unaffected. I think the key difference, therefore, is therefore on on providers that provide kind of services that don't fall within those regimes, so possibly some kind of bulk mental health services, possibly community services, diagnostic services, which don't fall within AQP. And I, I think the point there is that they're, For those, it's likely to increase barriers to entry. There's no mechanism for information provision in the new or substantially changed route. So how do new entrants to the markets either showcase their wares or convince decision makers that they're best placed to deliver services when when those decision makers are able to continue when they're happy? There's plainly a focus on stability and with continuing existing arrangements. One can see this could lead to complacency but it might be easier because it might be easier to roll over than to engage in an active search. Thanks, Sharon. So that was a great summary of the impact on private providers. What about decision makers? Jenny, how do you think commissioners will have to adapt their decision making under the new regime? Changes to decision making are perhaps most reflected in the model for new substantially changed decisions, so stream two. Um, As we said before, the legislative scheme requires decision makers to identify key criteria on which selection should be based. Many are not surprising, quality, value, but others are going to be difficult to quantify. So access, inequalities and choice, social value and service sustainability. Decision makers will therefore need to develop processes to First, gather the information they need to evaluate these factors, including a means of considering other options in their area. Two, evaluate fairly and robustly providers against these criteria in their local area. And three, consider representations from other providers after a minded two decision has been made. This will no doubt be a challenge. The consultation response is clear that there will not be a hierarchy in terms of how the criteria apply. From a public law perspective, that's perfectly normal. Generally speaking, the weight to provide to any particular criterion will be a question for the decision maker. However, it is surprising that the response indicates that the legislative scheme is unlikely to provide any guidance to decision makers about weight. Decision makers will need to consider, then, whether there are any additional factors to be considered alongside the key criteria, and if so, why they're relevant, how much weight to give the key criteria and any additional factors, the rationale for the weight assigned to each factor, so the factor hierarchy in each case, and also decision makers have to remember their duty to have regard to all their other statutory duties, so they can't exercise their statutory functions simply within this framework against the key criteria. A good record of decision-making will be required under the regime, and this will be an important factor in defending decisions to award contracts. It will also be key to meeting the various reporting requirements which will accompany the new regime. One other factor to keep in mind is that there are in fact two decisions, not only who to contract with, but what contracting process to follow. That first decision, 
as to the contracting process is also one that will need to be taken properly. As we've heard, the current right to challenge is removed under the new regime. So how can unsuccessful providers challenge decisions that they don't like? So I think we've we've started to kind of touch on that in our kind of discussions already. Representations can be made to the decision-making body once it's published its initial decision. Not clear what that is. It's certainly not a kind of claim at that point. Uh, in circumstances, presumably, this would lead to reconsideration. But the response specifically says that this process, the kind of representation process, shouldn't be used to delay contracting wards, awards or disrupting justifiable and sound arrangements made by decision-making bodies. I assume that's some kind of reference to contracts being set aside or being paused while challenges continue. In theory, what does that leave you? Possibly with an action in damages, but a bit unclear, and an action in damages would have to be established through judicial review. And, and where representations have been received, a decision, must, a decision maker must discuss the issue with providers and publish a response to objections before the award, which must, must state either if the decision maker will proceed with the contract or will reconsider. At that stage, judicial review would be available provide, for providers that want to challenge the lawfulness of the decision to award to a particular provider or possibly the initial decision not to run a competitive tender. But it does seem to mean the challenges will be limited to an error of law rather than an appeal on the merits of the decision. Jenny, a key question for all lawyers. How do you envisage the timescales for legal challenges working? To be honest, Catherine, I'm not sure I have a clear vision for how this is going to work. There's right now a real lack of clarity as to how the four to six week notice period of the intention to award a contract, so the pseudo standstill period, will work in relation to challenges. Normally in a JR, um, the claim form must be filed promptly and in any event not later than three months after the grounds to make the claim first arose. On this basis, um, it may be that the initial decision, so prior to the submission of the representations, does not start time running for JR purposes, as the decision with legal effect starts after the notice period. There's currently an exception in the CPR for procurement challenges by reference to time limits in the PCRs, but it's unclear how time limits will be dealt with once these regulations are repealed. You could amend the CPR to provide for a shorter time limit than three months, but then that would need to run from the final decision. More generally, and regardless of JR, what happens to the notice period if a representation is received? Can the pseudo-standstill be extended while the representation is considered? All that NHS England has said is that further information about this will be provided in the guidance. Catherine, given this uncertainty, do you have a view as to whether or not legal challenges will be more or less frequent? Well, part of the rationale for the new regime is reducing the risk of legal challenges and litigation. But the difficulty is that unsuccessful providers may feel they have little choice but to challenge decisions by way of judicial review. And that's given that well, first, there's no formal mechanism to ensure rival providers are properly considered before the decision is made. Secondly, there's no independent scrutiny at the decision-making stage. And thirdly, the ability to, to submit representations after the initial decision has been made provides little consolation and risks becoming a tick-box exercise. Really, what providers want is the right to make representations before any decision is made, because clearly that's when they have most chance of influencing the decision. 
As for the difficulties of bringing a challenge and whether it's possible to bring a successful challenge, clearly that would depend on the facts of a particular case. But just of some general observations that might be um, helpful, it seems to me it would be difficult to bring a challenge based on the way the commissioning body has exercised their discretion in scoring the relevant providers, uh, because effectively it's a question of judgment and it's going to be very difficult to show that the notoriously high Wensbury threshold has been met. But it seems to me there may be fertile ground based on other arguments. So in particular, Jenny touched on this earlier, but potentially breach of the Thameside duty of inquiry. It's unclear how a commissioning body can comply with this duty unless it gathers proper information about rival providers before making a decision. Um, And we'll have to see how it turns out, but I suspect that many providers, at least at the beginning, won't do that. And in any event, it's unclear the extent to which they're required to. There may also be a routine about decisions made without a proper evidential basis. It's still Wensbury, but it's an easier routine. There are also arguments about inconsistency of decision making. Also, departure from requirements in guidance. So, for example, I think it was Sharon who touched on the requirement to consider other providers. Um, And clearly, a decision maker is not allowed to depart from guidance without giving proper reasons for doing so. And then finally, of course, procedural unfairness. And it seems to me there's a particular risk of allegations of bias given the concerns raised in the consultation responses about conflicts of interest and lack of transparency. Sharon, I wonder, do you share those concerns? Well, I think the question about conflicts of interest and the health and care bill generally, um, it's a slightly wider one than just this provider selection regime and this consultation, because there's some lack of clarity of exactly how the different bodies will work together. So I think we have the wider issue of how a conflict's going to work where you have providers on integrated care boards and how is the system going to work in the new world alongside questions around the conflict of interest in this provider selection regime consultation. I mean, the, the, the response to the consultation said decision makers need to register and manage conflicts of, of interest appropriately but it's it's obviously important to ensure there's trust in the new regime and to minimize the risk of challenge. Um, it remains to be seen how effectively that will be done. Really, some of this does seem very subjective. So even if you know a conflict was declared, it, it might be possible for that to be justified under under some of the tools. I mean, clearly, an important element here is the question about transparency and whether this is really, or should become a closed shop, whilst we can understand the concerns about privatisation, I do think that taxpayers and the public do want to have some understanding about when contracts are awarded and to ensure that there is transparency of decision-making generally. And so things that are tools here for a decision-maker to both show that they've opened acted openly would be publication in advance, you know, even where contracts are being continued or rolled over. I mean, strictly that's a requirement at the moment, but not very well adhered to in practice. Uh, Decision-making bodies must also publish a list of contracts once awarded with relevant information about the contracts 
again, that's a requirement at the moment. Um, NHS have said this is something that they're de developing and this is key. It's a question of, you know, how much how much will be out there and what requirement will, will be and what will the rationale for that award in any notification. On a systems level, there'll also be audit requirements and reporting requirements. I mean, this is unlikely, I think, in practice to be helpful to anyone in challenging decision making. That's all we've got time for for today. Um, so I'll bring this session to a close. Thank you for listening. And also a very big thank you to our two speakers, Sharon Lamb and uh, Jenny Thielen. Hope to see you again soon at another 39 Essex Chambers podcast. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.